Now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 22, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and saw opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we give you thanks for your word and we pray that you would uh, grant us your Holy Spirit today, that we might receive the instruction that you have. Uh, give me strength today to clearly articulate the, the message of this passage and, and bring us all to a fuller understanding of our Savior's work on our behalf. For it's in His name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I think every year on Daylight Savings Time, Sunday, I threaten to next year, we're going to pretend like it didn't happen and we're going to not set our clocks on Sunday and wait to set them on Monday and just have worship at the regular old time. But, you know, it's, we could just say, you know, if the marketplace wants this, the marketplace can have it. Why don't you do it on Monday morning? Why do they have to do it on Sunday morning and then disrupt worship and make us all tired and groggy and grumpy? I'm not grumpy. Are you grumpy? Are you feeling okay? All right. I just wanted to check. wanted to be sure. But I guarantee you that if they, if they did the ch time change on Sunday night and people were dragging in an hour late to work on Monday morning, that whole program would end quickly. There's a reason they do it on Sunday. So I guess I am grouchy. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but I will try to be as, uh, as lively and as, uh, and as encouraging this morning as possible, knowing that we are all lacking an hour of, of sleep. Beware the Ides of March. You've heard that phrase before, I'm sure. We might not know where we heard that phrase, beware the Ides of March. I, I know I've heard that somewhere. It was uh, a line in Shakespeare's play, The Life and Death of Julius Caesar. And in just a few days, it will be March 15th, known as the Ides of March or the middle of March to the Romans, a date by which the Romans expected all debts to be paid off. You, you paid your debts by the Ides of March. The Ides of March was also a great uh, pagan festival in Rome. It was also famous because it was the date of the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. In one of the most famous betrayals in history, Caesar, Julius Caesar, was stabbed to death in a meeting of the Roman Senate, somewhere around 60 uh, conspirators who were led by Caesar's closest friends, Brutus and Cassius, attacked Caesar because they feared the, the, the power that he was growing to, to attain, and, and they feared that he was just getting too, too powerful. Well, what makes this so treacherous is that Brutus, who, who was one of the conspirators and led the conspiracy, Brutus was like a son to Julius Caesar. And according to Shakespeare in that, in that great scene when Caesar finally realizes Brutus's involvement in the plot, uh, Caesar you know, opens his chest to the attackers and he says, et tu Brute, uh, in other words, and you Brutus, or, or you also Brutus, you too, uh, really, and then 
Caesar gives up his fight and he submits himself to the knives of his treasonous friends. I, I wonder if that's where we get the term backstabbing. Literally, Caesar's friends stabbed him in the back uh, in the most literal way possible. To be stabbed in the back is to be betrayed by someone you trust. It's to be, it's to be exploited by someone whose support you depend on, someone with whom you've established a relationship to the point that you have a vulnerability with them and they have exploited that vulnerability. Now, maybe you've never literally been stabbed in the back like Caesar was, but I would guess that all of us at some point have had an experience of betrayal. Someone has, has betrayed us in, in some way. What makes betrayal so acutely painful, as you've experienced and you know this, what makes it so difficult to accept is that you are being treated as an enemy by someone who knows you. Who, who knows your character, who knows your desires, your goals. They know what makes you tick and, and they turn away from all that or they use all that against you and they work to destroy your reputation or undermine your work. See, only a friend can betray you. Only a friend can do this to you. An enemy it's impossible for an enemy to betray you. <laughs> it's, uh, you can't, an enemy can't betray you. Only a friend gets close enough to hurt you this way. The betrayer takes all of your good and calls it evil. They take your friendship and they twist it into belligerence. They, they call into question your motives. They call into question your spiritual health. They call into question your morality. And when they do this, it causes you to question yourself. It causes you to question your own sanity. It even calls you to question your own standing before God above. You think maybe, maybe I'm the sick one. Maybe I'm the bent one. Maybe I'm the twisted one. And, and, and then if you're betrayed long enough and, and hard enough, betrayal causes you not to want to trust anybody ever, to never let down your guard again, to never be vulnerable, to never open yourself up again. Now, we've all had that experience, and I've tried to articulate it to say, this is what we're talking about, and you know, you've, you've gone through this, but I want you to also know that you can be assured of this, that in the midst of betrayal, you are not alone. You, in fact, are in very good company. David, remember, had his own son Absalom who betrayed him. Paul talked about a couple of men. Uh, he talks about Demas who deserted him and Alexander the coppersmith who has done me much harm, Paul says. And above all this, Jesus had Judas. Who was Judas? Well, Judas was a man that had spent just about every day with Jesus for the last three years, working and teaching and healing and talking and eating together and laughing together and suffering together through, through conflict, through, through happy times, through, through uh, all, of these, all of these ups and downs, they were right there together. Jesus sent Judas off to minister to others. And this is the thing that, that I always, uh, I, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around. That is, Jesus sent his apostles out to work miracles. Judas was right there with them. When Jesus fed the multitudes, it was Judas's hands that gave the loaves and the fishes to the people who were sitting on the, on the lawn that day on the green grass. It was, it was Judas who saw with his own hands the mighty works of Jesus as he distributed the bread and the fishes to the people. 
And this man, this Judas, who has seen all of this, who has heard all of this, this Judas is going to turn Jesus over to the authorities. Judas is going to sell out his shepherd, his friend, his Lord to, to, the, to the Jewish authorities. So whenever you think, how could they do this? What have I done to deserve this? You know, understand when somebody's bent on betraying you, when someone's bent on treason, uh, what, what, what did Jesus do to deserve Judas's treatment? What did he do? What did Jesus do wrong? Well, the answer is nothing, right? <laughs> and, yet, and yet Judas still betrayed him. But Judas is not the only one who abandons Jesus. Judas is not the only one who denies or betrays him. The events from here to the end of the gospel, to the, to the end, uh, at least to the resurrection, this is an account of one long, continual rejection of Jesus. Jesus is rejected by his countrymen. He's rejected by the religious authorities who should have known that Jesus is living out the, the, the words of the prophets right before the very eyes, and yet they can't see this. The courts who blatantly subvert justice, who, who brazenly condemn an innocent man, reject Jesus and then all this in addition to Jesus' family and his friends, his closest companions, everyone leaves him. And at the cross, it's only John who's there uh, with his mother. Everybody else has fled. From here to the cross, Jesus experiences increasing loneliness and abandonment. And, and to the point that this seems to be built into the work of Jesus, of everything that Jesus suffered, of all of the slights and all of the mocking and all of the, uh, the, the, the awfulness that was heaped on him from here to the cross, a, an essential component according to the plan of God for the suffering of Jesus was his loneliness. It was essential that Jesus be lonely and alone through the cross. And that as he bears the weight of, of the sin and the shame of not only Israel, certainly he bears Israel's sin and shame, but he bears the sin and shame of the world. He does it alone. And the word loneliness takes on a whole new definition as we walk through these events over these next couple of weeks, as we head to Good Friday and as we look at the sufferings of our Lord. This passage where we started reading in Luke 22, it begins by reminding us that this was the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was the Passover. We saw last week how Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to accomplish my exodus. And we remember what, what he's talking about. He's going to do for Israel now what God did through Moses and Aaron back in the time of the exodus from Egypt. In Egypt, remember, the people were in bondage and God worked mightily to deliver his people and he judged the powers that were enslaving them. Remember also how in the first Exodus, the angel of death came and struck everyone who didn't have the blood on their doorposts and on the, on the, on the lintel and sides of their doors. They all lost their firstborn son, everyone who didn't have the, the mark, the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Now this Passover meal reminds us of that great deliverance. And it points us to the fact that judgment is now hanging over the head of Jerusalem, just as judgment hung over the head of Egypt while God was working those great signs and wonders. Now judgment hangs over Jerusalem. 
Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is going to take the blow of judgment on himself. His blood is going to be applied, allowing his people to escape this judgment that is coming. And so thematically, it's significant that Jesus has been using Exodus language so far, and now he initiates this final sequence of events with a Passover meal. Now, that's thematically why it's important that, that we understand his Passover Practically, there's another dimension. This is, this is why there's so many people in Jerusalem around this time. Perhaps hundreds of thousands of people are gathered for the festival. And they're gathered in a city that's already a pressure cooker of, of nationalism and revolutionary sentiments. Many of the people who are gathered here now are going to be more motivated by the idea of national liberation than they are motivated by the idea of keeping the feast and keeping the covenant. These kinds of gatherings, when, when Jerusalem was swelling with pilgrims, it was, always a, it was always a very precarious time for the local Roman authorities. And so the Roman authorities are all on high alert and they're ready to put down any uprising. It's because of all the people in the city, and it's because of all the people who like Jesus and are listening to Jesus, it's because of all these people that the authorities can't do anything with him in public. All, all the men in positions of power at this point, they're all, they're all just fed up with Jesus. They're done with him at this point. The way, the way he's been teaching in the temple, he's been calling them unfaithful stewards over God's uh, uh, vineyard. Uh, the, 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 he's called them exploiters of widows. Jesus has sat in the temple and he said all this stuff that you see around you, it's all, it's all coming down. Not one stone is going to be left on another. They're tired of this. And John tells us in his gospel that, that around the same time is when he also... Uh, gave Lazarus life from the grave. He, he resurrected Lazarus from the grave. And they know at this point, the authorities know, we can't stop him. And we can't deal with him publicly because every time we engage him, he embarrasses us. He, he pulls our pants down and, and spanks our backsides every time we engage this guy. So what can we do with him? What, what, is our, what is our option? If we try to arrest him in the middle of the day, the, the people are going to start a riot and Rome is going to come down hard on us, not them and not Jesus. So they have to do something to turn the tide in their favor. And Judas provides them that opportunity by selling Jesus out, by betraying Jesus. Luke tells us in his gospel that the surname of Judas is Iscariot. Now, that Iscariot might very well be a reference to where, um, where Judas is from. It might also be a reference to his political affiliation. The, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us about a splinter group of Jewish zealots who are called the Sicarii. Uh, and they're called this because they carried around a sika, a little, a little dagger that they could keep under their robes. And whenever they were in a crowded marketplace or in, in, in any kind of um, mob or, or crowd, they could, they could uh, very deftly stab uh, Roman sympathizers or Romans. They could, they could stab them and then, and then hide the, the dagger back in their robes and melt into the crowd before anybody even noticed where it came from or, or who did it. The, the Sicarii were a, a, a zealous uh, group of, of Jewish revolutionaries. And so it's possible that, that Judas is, that Iscariot means dagger man. That might be what it means, that, that Judas is a zealot. 
And perhaps he's getting very impatient with the way things are going with Jesus. Maybe Judas had an entirely different vision for how this is all supposed to go. He joins up with Jesus and he's got these ideas of worldly glory and domination and, and military victories over, over Herod and, and Rome. And, and all while Judas is thinking this, here's Jesus talking about suffering and dying and rejection. And, and Judas is thinking, well, that's not how you go about this. This is not, this is not how you set up a kingdom on, on earth. That's not how you run a revolution. So maybe Judas is thinking that, that he could engineer a confrontation. Maybe, you know, Jesus has done some pretty amazing things. And, and maybe if I, if I set this up, maybe I can provoke Jesus to do something extraordinary, to really reveal his true power, to blow away the Jewish power structures, to take over Jerusalem, to kick out the Romans. So, so maybe I'll just turn Jesus over and see what happens. Now, that's just me trying to be sympathetic or try to figure out Judas. But you know, really, at the end of it all, Luke doesn't tell us any of that. And what he does tell us is that Satan entered Judas. So, so maybe some of that or maybe part of that is true. But the bottom line is Satan entered Judas. And that's all we really need to know. Satan didn't enter Judas against Judas's will. Judas was already in love with Mammon. In another place, we find out that Judas has his hand in the, in the money box that he's been stealing from the treasury that the, that the apostles kept with them. And so he's already drawn to worldly wealth and worldly power. Judas entertained Satan so long that, that Satan was right at home in and with Judas. So we need to know that the work of the traitor, the work of the betrayer is the work of Satan. Satan is an accuser of the brethren. Satan stirs up contempt and he stirs up accusations to level against the people of God. Satan wants you to feel nothing more than worthlessness and a constant cloud of guilt and, 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 and self-deprecation and fear and anxiety because Satan is an accuser of the brethren. He doesn't want you to think that your sins are forgiven. He doesn't want you to think that we have any unity or love or communion together. He doesn't want you to think that you can be patient with the sins of your brothers and sisters. He wants you to think that your job is to accuse your brothers and sisters. He wants you to think that you're being holy when you have contempt for your brothers and sisters. But see, that's the work of Satan. Satan is an accuser and he stirs up people to be accusers themselves. You need to know that when you have contempt for the people of God, you are putting on the hat of Satan and you're doing his work for him. He can go on break because he's got you and you're doing his job. That's the work of Satan. And Satan enters Judas and Judas welcomes him. <laughs> There's no resistance. Judas loves this partnership. Well, let's pick it up from there and see where it goes. Verse 7. <clears throat> then, the day, uh, then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city... A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. 
there make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Three very quick observations about these preparations for Passover. First, it's all very quiet and all in secret. It's a little bit like a spy novel. You almost expect the uh, Mission Impossible theme to start playing when Jesus says, okay, go into the town and you'll find a man carrying a jar. Follow him to an empty room and there make your preparations. And uh, it, it's, it's all, all this subterfuge. Um, and, and this is appropriate and Jesus has to do this because even... Even though the wheels are in motion now with Judas, Jesus still has work to do before everything ends. And so they've got to be a little bit quiet about what they're doing. The second interesting feature is that even though Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Luke tells us this is where the Passover sacrifice is killed. This is, this is where we, we uh, prepare the, the Passover lamb. There's no mention of a lamb anywhere in this account anywhere at the supper. So even though there's a Passover meal, there's no lamb. Well, where's the lamb? Well, the lamb is at the head of the table, right? The, the lamb is sitting there. Uh, Jesus is, is functioning as, as the lamb at the feast, and he's going to feed them off of his own blood uh, and body at this, at this feast. So what that means is, is that Jesus is transforming this feast and its meaning even as we, even as we make preparations. Jesus is is um, doing something different here. And this is also important because thirdly, you don't typically eat Passover with your friends. You don't typically celebrate Passover, a, a, a master and his disciples or a teacher and his students. You don't typically celebrate Passover with your class. You celebrate Passover in your houses with your family. But again, Jesus is doing something different here. He's deliberately transforming this. Jesus has already shown us repeatedly that he is the head of a new family. And so in this new feast that Jesus is about to institute, in this feast that Jesus is about to give us, the only head of the house that matters is Jesus. And the only family that matters is the church. You get that? The only head of the house that matters is Jesus gives them the bread and the wine. The only head of the house that matters is Jesus. And the only household that matters is the church. All other relationships drop to the back. Master and slave, general and private, father and son. It all, it all drops to the back. And what comes forward is our unity as brothers and sisters from the least to the greatest in this new family. And Jesus is transforming this. Passover was done in homes, but this feast is being transformed by Jesus into something new as he creates a new family. And he's already told us your earthly mother and father, your earthly brother and sister may betray you, but I'm not going to leave you and I'm not, going to, I'm not going to depart from you. I'm not going to betray you. When they came to Jesus and said, your mom and your brothers are outside, he says, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Look around. This, this is my family. These are the people who follow me and who love me. This is my family. The church is your primary family. I will never leave you. So, so your, your families are not eternal. Your family, my family, is not eternal. This family, however, is eternal. The church is the family that matters when we come together at the Lord's table. There's no part of the supper that Jesus institutes that, that's meant to underscore the old family or, or, or point out family structures or to, or to illustrate uh, family bonds. In fact, he goes the opposite direction. 
This, this, what Jesus does here, is no longer a family feast, uh, meaning your old Adamic family. The new Passover is for the church. So even every Lord's Day, every Lord's Day as we celebrate at the Lord's table together, I stand here, my wife is at the piano, my children are back on their chairs, but we're still eating the Lord's Supper as a family, right? Why? Because this This is the family that matters at the Lord's table. This is the family that that is underscored, that's illustrated. These are the connections. These are the bonds that are being unified at the Lord's table. What would it illustrate? What What would it underscore if I were to leave the Lord's table and come over to my wife and get my kids together and we were to make sure that we eat the bread and drink the wine together and then we just kind of filter back out? What would that teach? You know what it would teach? It would say, This morning at the Lord's table, this is more important than this. That's what it would say. That's what it would teach. This is more critical and more substantial and more important than this. And that's a lie. (laughs) That's false. When we come to the Lord's table, this is the family that is necessary. This is the family that we are uh, working to unify. And especially in an age where the church is marginalized in, a, in an age where people don't care about the church. They don't, they don't care about church attendance. They, they don't care about loyalty or membership in, in the body of Christ. Why would we do anything to undercut this unity? Why would we do anything to, to draw apart and try to underscore something that, that Jesus is deliberately working against? Why would we do that? It's because Jesus is doing something new. This, this is the this is the, the, the uh, uh, thrust of, of what we're seeing here. Let's pick up with verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. Luke's account first mentions a cup that Jesus took and he told the apostles to divide it among themselves. At the Passover meal, you drink four cups of of wine. You drink wine at four different parts of the Passover meal. So it made sense to have wine at the ready. The cup that we're familiar with comes later in in the passage. But but as they go through the Passover, Jesus makes two references to eating and drinking in the kingdom. He, He talks about the day that's coming that's soon coming when he would be enthroned at the right hand of the Father, when Jesus is king over all things. And we see this at the ascension, at the ascension of our Lord Jesus, a son of Adam, a man is now elevated and sits at the right hand of God over all creation. We finally fulfill the dominion mandate with with a man sitting at the right hand of God the Father over over everything. And then Jesus says, when when this happens, I want to eat and drink with you. 
I want to eat and drink with my people. I want to commune with you and by communing with you, rule with you. So when we all gather seated around his table, the spirit catches us up and, and we eat as it were in heaven with Jesus. This, this is a heavenly table. And so we sit and drink and eat in the kingdom of God, as Jesus said we would do here. And the ritual that Jesus gives is so simple. It's, it's almost, it, it, it's, it's so simple that, that it's amazing how many different ways we found to mess it up. It, 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 how many different ways we have tried to add novelties and oddities to it. Jesus takes real bread and he breaks it and he gives it to his men and they take it and they break off a piece and they hand it to the man next to him and he takes it and breaks off a piece and he hands it to the man next to him and he takes a cup and he drinks and he passes that cup and they drink. They eat it. First the bread after he gives thanks, then the wine after he gives thanks. You just, you, you don't mix them. You don't, you don't dip the bread in the wine. Where did that come from? Why do we do that? Where did, did Jesus teach us that? Did Jesus teach us to process? Did, did, the, did, the, did, the, uh, did the apostles form a line and, and, and he gave it to them one at a time? Dip it, give it. Is that what Jesus did? No, Jesus said, do this. And Jesus is pleased when we do what he says, when we just do what he says and, and not innovate and, and not add novelties and oddities. We're most pleasing to him. And this is how we... This is how we have dominion over, over the world. And this is how our rule is manifest, Jesus says, at this table. When you do what I, when, when you do what I say. It's, it's um, so simple. And it's so funny how we, can, how we can mess with and play with something that's so uh, obvious and so simple. Verse 24, continuing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus has just given them a vision of their rule together with himself at the head of the table. And their first impulse, they, they get this vision of them ruling over creation with Jesus as their head. And they, they start to bicker about who's the greatest. And so Jesus completely shuts that down. And he says, you know, there's a kind of rule that you're familiar with in the world. You've experienced it firsthand. You've experienced it from the Pharisees. You've experienced it from the, the Herods and the Romans and the priests. There's a kind of authority that you've seen. It looks, it looks authoritative. It looks definitive. It has the appearance of strength. But in fact, look at what these men have done with this power. They have made slaves of the people. They have devoured the weak and the powerless. They've taken advantage of the faithful and the pious and, and have manipulated them by guilt to serving their own ends. These, these men put on airs. They elevate themselves over others. They demand that you fawn over them and recognize how powerful and stalwart they are. And even as you kowtow to them, they smack you in the head and stab you in the back. 
But that's the kind of power that the world admires. That's, that's what's seen as real strength in the world. Uh, I, I can never uh, forget that, that image in, in uh, George Orwell's 1984 where he describes uh, this, this worldly power as boots stomping on faces. That's what, it, that's what it looks like, boots stomping on faces. That's worldly power. And, and if you remember reading uh, 1 Corinthians, this is, this is what Paul is trying to get the Corinthian church to see. The Corinthian church had subjected themselves to false teachers who were abusing their power, who were abusing their authority, and they looked like they had this kind of strong leadership over them. And at the same time, the Corinthians thought Paul was weak because Paul was like Jesus. Paul humbled himself. He didn't, he didn't lord himself over them. He didn't crush their spirits. He didn't enslave them. And they disdained Paul for it. And this is, this is Satan's trick. <clears throat> And this is the trick the apostles are falling into. And this is the trick the Corinthian church was falling into. There is a false leadership that looks like strength. And, and often true leadership has the appearance of weakness. But this is the way that Jesus has called his people to follow. Despite the mocking of the people who don't get it, the way to glory is humility and sacrifice. The way to rule is service. Jesus was crowned king by way of the cross and suffering and death. And the only real authority you ever have is the authority you gain by service and sacrifice and suffering and death. You have to die before you can be crowned. No amount of swagger, no amount of authoritarianism, no amount of bullying, no amount of self-congratulation will ever gain you real authority in the kingdom of God. It will never achieve real authority. Jesus wants his men to rule, no doubt. He wants them to rule, but in this unconventional, countercultural way, the way of the cross, the way that he's about to demonstrate to them. And then Jesus turns to Peter in verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you will deny three times that you know me. Something is different uh, with Peter than Judas. Something different is going on there. Satan entered Judas, but Satan is only going to test. He's only going to tempt or try Peter, just, just like God allowed Satan to test or try Job's faith. Peter is going to tempt it in much the same way Jesus himself was tempted. And the experience that Peter is going to go through is going to strengthen him and make him more able to strengthen the brethren. Well, we'll see that in our text next week. He gives them a few more instructions. Verse 35, <clears throat> And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. When Israel was in the wilderness, you'll remember, and they were uh, wandering there for 40 years, they had food bred from heaven, right? And their clothes never wore out and their sandals never wore out. 
and God was providing for them and protecting them this whole time. But when they entered the land that God had given them, the manna stopped and their clothes and their shoes started to wear normally. There was this threshold where it was time to mature and it was time to begin to eat off the land and and time to to provide for yourselves. So Jesus presents his apostles with a, a similar threshold. When I was with you physically in the world, you didn't lack anything. Everything was provided for you. I protected you. But now you need to know things are about to change. The world is about to change. So take a money bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your coat and buy one. You may have to defend yourselves because I'm going to the cross, but I need you to stick around for a while. I've got purposes for you beyond tonight. I'm going to depart, but you're going to have to continue. And so be wise and conduct your affairs uh, and and grow in, in almost an institutional sense. Know that you're going to have to have a treasure. You're going to have to have money. You're going to have to defend yourselves uh, when the time comes. Verse 39, <clears throat> coming out. He went to the Mount of Olives and he was, as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed saying, father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he arose up from prayer and come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus has been talking about his death. He just gave them a meal to commemorate his death. Why does he now pray for the father to take this cup away from him? Well, he knows that his death is going to take him face to face with the full horror of wickedness and darkness and God forsakenness. He is about to come to a place of confrontation with all the evil powers of the cosmos in a way that no one has ever done before. And he knows that these forces are going to do their absolute worst. They're going to do their, they're, they're going to bring all of their powers down on him in the hopes of destroying him. So Jesus wonders, Perhaps there's another way. Is there, is there another way? Father, have you worked out something else? When Abraham took Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him at the last minute, you provided another way. You, you did something. You, you, you came and you intervened and you, and you showed a different, a different plan. Father, is there something that, that, that you haven't revealed to me? Is there something that, that, that we've got coming here? Is there a way uh, that we'll have some other means of deliverance? But at the same time Jesus asks that, he says, I'm, I'm fully committed to the Father's will. And, uh, and Lord, your will, not my will, be done. Even in the midst of this suffering and even in the midst of this darkness of the soul, this, this dark time, uh, Jesus still has to continually goad his men to faithfulness, even as a party shows up to arrest him. He says, wake up, pray with me. Why, why are you asleep? Verse 47, we'll end with uh, verse 53. So we'll just read this other little, little section about Jesus' arrest. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike him with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. 
Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Judas completes his betrayal of the Lord Jesus with a kiss as a way of indicating to the guards who they ought to arrest. This, this is the man that, that you need to arrest. And Jesus, Jesus points out the irony. You're betraying me with a kiss. Do you realize how brazen this is? But, but often you've experienced this too. Just as someone is stabbing you in the back, they do so with a smile, right? They do so with a sweet, dripping you know, kindness that's, oh, I'm so sorry that it has to be this way. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry we have to do this. You've, you've felt that and you've experienced it as well. This is, this is how Satan acts, you know, this, this uh, irony. And so when the apostles see what is happening, they think back to what Jesus just said about carrying a sword and they think, oh yeah, this is, this is sword time. This is, this, is, this is what we need swords for. And they ask Jesus, uh, what, what do they say? They, uh, uh, <coughs> Lord, uh, shall we strike them with a sword? And before Jesus even answers, uh, we find out in John's gospel, it's Peter who takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. But Jesus doesn't lose his mind at this betrayal. Jesus doesn't become bitter and angry. Jesus does something that, that is just incomprehensible to us. Not only is, does he submit himself to the to the arresting mob in saying, permit even this. This is, this is fine. Uh, this, is what, this is what I'm here for. He heals the ear of the attacker. Uh, and so showing this and doing this this way, he's saying, I'm, I'm here to be arrested. Don't, don't resist, don't fight back. This is not an armed revolution. But he can't help but point out, Jesus can't help but point out how ridiculous this whole scene is. He says, you come out here with swords and clubs, but I was with you daily in the temple. Did you ever see me carrying a sword? Did you ever see me wielding a club? Uh, Who do you think I am? Have I been marching around with an army? Why do you come out at night to arrest me? Have I hidden from you? I've been in plain sight. I rode into town on a donkey and people were shouting my name. I have been hiding from you. He's calling them cowards because they don't have the courage to arrest him in the daylight. But he also knows that the crowds would have torn them apart. Uh, And now under the cover of night, he says, you pull off your conspiracy and you get things done the way you want to. But I want you to know that, that you're really, you're not being brave here. This is, this is not justice, but this is the hour of the, of the power of darkness. And the irony here is that they're just proving what they are. Jesus said the temple is a den of thieves and revolutionaries. And here they're not acting like public servants. The, the, by the light of day, they're acting like thieves in the night. As Jesus is arrested, everyone scatters except for Peter who follows at a distance Uh, and we'll pick up there next week. But the betrayal by Judas has kicked off this chain of abandonments for Jesus to where now he goes into the lion's den. He goes into the belly of the beast alone. None of his companions are arrested with him. Jesus's friend betrayed him. Another is about to deny him. The rest have just left him. And Jesus told his disciples that they would be betrayed by those closest to them. And here, Jesus is a pioneer through the valley of abandonment and betrayal, which means that no matter how much rejection you may experience as as a result of your faithfulness, no matter 
how you may be betrayed by others with whom you have confided, you can know this, child of God, you are not alone. You are never alone. You are not all by yourself. Jesus has already done this. Jesus has already been through it. And his doing this, his going through this loneliness and abandonment has bought your deliverance. If you're faithful, you're going to experience this. Following Jesus always comes with the possibility that there are times where you're going to feel like you're doing it all alone. You're going to feel like I'm the the only one who gets it. I'm the only one who understands what's happening here. Nobody else else understands. They don't appreciate what I'm trying to accomplish. They don't don't appreciate the sacrifices that I'm making. And, And you have to go on despite their rejection of you. Sometimes it's friends. Sometimes it's people you respect who reject you, who don't want any part of your faithfulness, or they mock or they tease you or they hold you in contempt. And when they do that... Don't you think, if you're being faithful, now sometimes you get rejected because you're being a fool, right? I want to be clear about that. I mean, not, not all rejection is because you're this high, holy, pristine person who's, who never does anything wrong, right? I mean, we always have this check. We always have this, Lord, let me know. If I'm failing you, if I'm sinning, stop me in my tracks. Do not let me proceed if I'm sinning, if I'm being foolish. But If you are acting in the name of Jesus and acting righteously, that comes with the possibility of rejection. It comes with the possibility of abandonment. And in that moment, you don't think, oh man, I'm really messing up because they've rejected me. No, understand that's a mark of a disciple of Jesus. The temptation is to cling to your friends, to worry about what they think, to worry about their opinions, to to really get upset about their disapproval and reject Jesus in the process. Young people, teenagers, children, you are especially prone to this because your friends are so important to you and, and what they think of you is so critical to you. You are tempted to want to please them and not Jesus. But you understand that often pleasing Jesus means getting scorn and rejection from these people who you thought were your friends. Never, never take them over Jesus because the truth is when you obey the Lord and you follow him, you gain more than you would ever lose in leaving them. And remember, you are never alone. Jesus has been lonely. He knows what that's like. And by his rejection, you are brought near. He has been exiled so that you can have communion with his body, the church. You can have communion with God, the father and God, the Holy spirit. It's done by his rejection, by his rejection, you have union and communion. Let's give thanks for that. Father in heaven, we praise you for your son, Jesus, who has done all of these amazing things. And father, we are, are, uh, awed and, and in, uh, complete, uh, a state of praise and thanksgiving and gratitude for everything our Lord did for us. We cannot imagine going through this degree of suffering and rejection, but he did it and he did it for us. And we ask you to accept our praise and our thanksgiving by embracing him, grow us up into his image. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.